Our God and Father, Lord, we are grateful that you are the King of Heaven. Lord, that you are on the throne, that nothing escapes your attention. Indeed, you hold the whole world in your hands. We honor you and we bless you and we praise you. We thank you that you have given us life and breath and that you give us everything we need, God. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gospel, which is your power to save us. The message about the person and the work of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We thank you, God, that you have chosen us out of the world and saved us by the washing of regeneration. We thank you, Lord, that you have seen fit to wash us and cleanse us and forgive us of our sins, even as far as the east is from the west. So far have you removed our sins from us. God, we thank you. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. We ask, Lord, as we look into your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what your spirit is saying to the church. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, before we get started, I just wanted to recommend another book to you. This one is called The Doctrine of Repentance. It's uh, This is a book written by Thomas Watson, 17th century pastor. And it, it really is just a discourse on what is true biblical repentance. And uh, if you've never read this book, this is a really good one to read. So, uh, The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. Okay? With that, I want to just uh, kind of bring you up to speed with a little bit of review. We've been talking about the gospel and spent quite a bit of time the first few weeks describing the nature of the gospel and talking about the different elements of the gospel and the fact that there is, really is one simple gospel, and but that the gospel is more than just the one simple gospel and that it takes many forms, if you will. And so that in the New Testament, the gospel is expressed in many different ways and in many different forms. And uh, today we're going to see that some more as we look at some of the teaching of Jesus about the gospel. But uh, one important thing to understand is this issue of the lordship of Christ. And remember how last week we were saying that Jesus is not just a savior, although he is a savior, right? He's also the Lord. And that when you receive Jesus, you don't just get a Savior, but you get a Savior and a Lord. Amen? And then so we talked about the fact that in, in the 20th century, this became a huge controversy within inside the evangelical or what is the so-called evangelical church in America. And uh, that uh, this wasn't a war that was being waged outside of the church by liberal theologians or anything like that, those who had long since departed from the authority of Scripture. But this was a war that was being waged within the evangelical gospel-believing church. And even by so-called faithful uh, uh, theologians who believed in the authority of Scripture. 
And so that this, uh, if you will, was uh, what I termed a watered-down gospel that really kind of crept into the evangelical church. And then I was also telling you that this has impacted evangelical Christianity, and, and she really has yet to recover from the impact that this has had on the church. And so... I would suggest that the worst thing this has done to the gospel in the evangelical church is it has caused us to um, do what we call reductionism. Okay, And I keep telling you about reductionism. And that is that we reduce the gospel down to one simple cliche. Uh, like, Jesus died for you. Or, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. Or, you know, like many others that I've told you about. And, and why, uh, you know, while many of those things may be true in and of themselves, they, they really don't really express the gospel properly because they don't give us any balance or understanding about that, nor do they give us any depth of insight into what we mean by that. Uh, you know, if we tell people that Jesus died... To, to give us forgiveness of sins, well, that's, that's a very important and true thing, but isn't it very important for them to understand that, that that can apply to them as an individual if they will have faith in Christ? And that furthermore, that means that they must come to a recognition of their own depravity and sin before God, and that without repentance from that sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that atonement that Christ did cannot apply to them? And moreover, if they reject that and they don't possess the kind of faith that the Bible says uh, saves us, that they'll be shut out from the presence of God forever, right? Aren't all those elements important and true facts that we need to understand about the gospel? So if that's true, if what I'm saying is true, that the gospel is more than just the one cliche, right, then we have to be careful not to do this thing we call reductionism. We can't just, you know, we live in a we live in a culture of sound bites, don't we? We live in a culture where everybody, you know, they want to drive up to Mick Church and they want to get the Mick Gospel, right? We don't have a, a, you know, our attention spans about this long, right? Because American culture, they're used to staring at the tube, you know. And it's got all these fancy lights. And it's got all this fancy emotion and drama. And it's all played out with music. And it's choreographed. And the whole thing is a big fireworks show, right? And so we're, we're used to having everything captivated sensually, you know, with our eyes and our ears and our hearts and the whole shooting match, right? Well, it's not that... Uh, the gospel isn't an exciting thing that can captivate us. Of course, God is the most exciting thing there is. Amen? He created everything. What must He be like? Amen? But the point is that, you know, we, we, we're looking for, you know, uh, 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 we're looking for the, the quick little advertising message that's going to catch our attention. Right? Well, the gospel is not that. Okay? The gospel is more than just one little cliche about Christ, okay? And so it's important that we don't just reduce it to something that's very shallow and very simple and doesn't really get to the heart of, of the truth of the gospel. Amen? Amen? 
And so, you know, another thing I want to mention, I've been meaning to mention to you, is that, you know, evangelism really is just a component of discipleship. And let me explain to you what I mean. Evangelism is not really the method that God has chosen to bring people into the kingdom. The method that God has chosen to bring people into the kingdom is discipleship. Okay, what does that mean? It means becoming a disciple. Okay, and it's through the process of discipleship that we come to embrace Christ, okay, and repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ and show deeds worthy of repentance. Are you with me? So evangelism, of course, is that is that thing that has to happen for every true Christian. At some point, we need to hear the gospel, right? And the Holy Spirit needs to take that gospel and apply it to us in regeneration, right? Which is something that happens in evangelism. But the process by which that evangelism happens is in the larger process of discipleship, okay? And so that, you know, many times... People may at one point in time have some experience where, you know, they go to a gospel revival or, a, a, or, or some kind of a preaching thing and they hear the gospel and they have an experience and they may even be converted there, okay, where they actually respond even to an altar call or something like this. But, the, you know, at that point in time, that's when the Holy Spirit has given them new birth, okay, that, that may be true. But, but more times than not, it's something that happens through a process of time that we begin to see and know and understand. And, and so that process is happening in discipleship as we're being taught the gospel in all of its forms. And we're beginning to embrace all of the elements of it. And God is beginning to make it clear to us what this gospel is and what it means and how it applies to our life. Amen? I mean, many of you have been saved for many years. And there's still so much to learn, and you're learning so much, and you're, you know, and, and, and everything you learn is just transforming your life more and more and more. It's making you more and more hungry for Christ and for God and for His kingdom. Amen? And all of that is in the process of discipleship. Are you with me? Okay? We're not, we didn't just get saved, but we are being saved currently. Amen? And we will be saved ultimately. Right? Are you with me? But he who endures till the end shall be saved. And ultimately, the, the, the endurance of the Christian or the perseverance of the Christian is what shows our true repentance in the end. Are you with me? So we'll talk some more about that. But it's important then to understand, because of the, this controversy that I talked to you about that has impacted the evangelical church, we'll call it the Lordship Controversy, Okay, because of that, the gospel that we hear has been reduced, and the gospel that people in our culture are embracing many times is a gospel that has been reduced, and that's why we as good gospel ministers need to be able to articulate the gospel to people, and we need to be able to bring it forth in its many forms, because it may just be that the one that they have lacked to hear is the very one that God will choose to save them with. Are you with me? Okay, so um, it's important then when we talk about the lordship of Christ that we do not reduce the gospel to this thing where Jesus is only a savior and he's not a lord. Because let me tell you, he is as much of a lord as he is a savior. Amen? 
And when you come to Christ, He expects you to fully obey Him. Amen? Amen. You know, uh, Pastor Tim this morning was talking about persecution. It kind of dawned on me, this idea, you know. If you run around telling people that God loves you and He's got a plan for your life, you're not liable to reap much persecution from that message, are you? Nobody's really offended by the fact that God loves them and, and wants to forgive all their sins and give them eternal life. Right? What's offensive to people in the gospel? Right. Somebody said sin. Somebody said repentance. Right? It's when you point that big, long, bony finger of a prophet at them and say, you're a sinner and you need a savior. Right? That's when the ha- the hackles on the back of their neck start to rise up. Right? When you start telling them that uh, they're, they're hopelessly lost in their sins apart from Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save them. Amen? And now all of a sudden they can't save themselves. And all of a sudden their eternal destiny is outside of their own will and power to fix it. Right? Now they got a real problem. Right? And, uh, of course, there are many other elements of the gospel that are offensive. But you have to understand that, you know, if we take, if we take all the good things about the gospel, and that's our package that we're selling, we're not liable to engender much persecution at all, are we? Are you with me? So why is it that the church has been persecuted so much through the centuries? Well, because the true church has been preaching the true gospel. Right? And uh, that engenders persecution. Because the true gospel is not a popular message to the natural man. In fact, the scripture says the natural man does not accept the things of God. Right? Nor is he even able to do so. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Right? 1 Corinthians 2.14 And so, he doesn't accept the things of God. Right? And when you begin to tell him the things of God, they become an offense to him. And for the true believer, that offense ultimately turns into brokenness and humility and faith. Amen? Okay, well, so then, when we start talking about this lordship controversy, the the fact of the matter is, is that the gospel calls us to repentance and not only faith. Are you with me? And so the gospel is calling us to have a responsive obedience to the commands of Christ, specifically to stop sinning. Are you with me? And to start doing what is right, because that's what the call to repentance is. And so it's not just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? But that true belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the nature of that belief accompanies obedience to the commandments of God. So, in other words, if you have the kind of faith that saves, that faith is characterized by obedience to God, right? Not that obedience to God earns you any merit with God. Are you with me? Because we've already established that justification happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? but that if you possess the kind of faith that saves, it is characterized by repentance and obedience. Are you with me? Okay? So this is where there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of misunderstandings. Okay? Works 
does not merit the favor of God. There's nothing you can do to merit the favor of God. You're a sinner and you've already offended him. Amen? Jesus' perfect life has merited the favor of God. And Jesus' death has paid the penalty for our sins. Thus, favor with God and reconciliation with God happens simply by faith in Christ. However, the kind of faith that saves a man is the kind of faith that's truly repentant from the heart. It's truly humble and broken before God, and it proves that repentance by its deeds. Are you with me? Okay. And so, which means then, first and foremost, we, we come to Christ not only believing that he saved us by his life and death, right? But in embracing that, we're willing to surrender to his lordship. We're willing to follow him as master and king, okay? Because he does have high and holy commands which are to be fully obeyed. That's unmistakable in the words of Jesus. Would you agree? Okay, so then, last week we talked about that. We talked about the Lordship Controversy. I pointed out this book here, The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. Really, this is a book that happened in the midst of the Lordship Controversy. If you will, he was taking the side that true saving faith produces obedience to the commandments of Christ, and he was right in the middle of the whole controversy. Okay? And this was his defense in the controversy. So uh, that's why I point this out. If You know, every Christian ought to have this book. Every Christian ought to read this book. Because it, it, it teaches us from the text of Scripture the true gospel that Jesus was teaching us. And it causes us to look very intently at the words of Jesus in his gospel. Are you with me? Okay, so that's why I brought that up. Um, but then we began to talk about the fact that Jesus is Lord. Remember, I said that you don't make Jesus Lord, but that he already is Lord, right? And that, uh, you know, here's another thing we do, right? You know, you need to make Jesus your Lord. Make Jesus your Lord. You know, and of course, you know, there there really is a genuine drive behind those who would would say this, right? They're asking you to come willingly to Christ and to submit willingly to his lordship, right? But my point was, you don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is already Lord. Amen? He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Of course he's Lord. He's the only sovereign and king. God, very God. God Almighty, eternal God. Jesus said to, to uh, the Pharisees, you know, before Abraham was, I am. Right? And he's talking about the fact that he is the eternal God. Amen? So that makes him, by virtue, the only sovereign and king. Are you with me? And so Jesus is Lord. And so this, this truth is held out in the scripture. Jesus is... Um, the very God of providence and the sustainer of everything that he has created. He is the reigning king of history and he is the judge of the living and the dead. That's who Christ is. He's the Lord. Amen? Amen. And every man and woman who has ever lived is going to give an account to Christ at the judgment after death. Amen? 
That's what the Bible clearly teaches. And so it would say something like this in Philippians 2, 9 and following. Therefore, also God highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody who has ever lived is going to face Christ and bow the knee before him and confess him to be Lord. That's what the Bible says. You know why that is? Because Jesus is Lord. He is Lord, and he's not going to put up with the rebellion of mankind. Everybody's going to give an account. Amen? Amen. Remember when we studied Romans 3? And Romans 3, 19 and 20 said that the whole world was accountable to God for the things that were written in the law and the things that were written on their conscience. Amen? And so that accountability is going to be real. It's going to be real for every man and woman, and it's going to be to Jesus. The accountability that we have is going to be to Jesus. And in that accountability, we are going to recognize that He is the Lord. Amen? So whether you receive Him as Lord or submit your life to Him as Lord, or whatever terms you want to to use, <laughs> right? Um, the fact of the matter is that He is the Lord, and He is your Lord, and you are accountable to Him whether you recognize it or not. Amen? And so is every man. Every man is accountable to Christ. Every single man and woman that has ever lived is accountable to Christ. And And family, that's a gospel truth. Okay? And and so either either you come to Christ and you be saved or you reject Christ and you perish. Isn't that the essential message of the gospel? Isn't the very name of Jesus the Lord saves? Isn't that God's purpose in creating everything that he did that through the redemption of Christ he might manifest his glory and excellency as God? Yes? Okay, well then, so, Jesus is not only Lord, but his gospel calls us to willing submission to his lordship. More than this, the Bible clearly teaches that obedience to Christ cannot be separated from saving faith, and that love for God and repentance from sin are equated with saving faith. You hear what I'm saying here? I'm saying that, Obedience to Christ cannot be separated from saving faith. Let me put it another way. In the Bible, whenever there is a a teaching about saving faith that is portrayed, it is usually tied directly to obedience at some level or degree or in some way or form. And I'm going to show you that today in some of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. But what I'm telling you is, In New Testament theology, you cannot separate obedience from saving faith. Okay? This is the point in the teaching of every apostle, and it's the point of the teaching of Jesus when he talks about the nature of faith. Okay? And I'll show you that in the scripture. Um, Jesus is frequently heard asserting his right to rule us and calling people to obedience to himself. So here's what we're saying. When Jesus is preaching his gospel, he is asserting his right to rule us. He's asserting his right as Lord and King. And he's referring to us, 
in, in terms that uh, are, are like, if you will, a master and a slave or a servant. He is asserting the fact that he is the Lord and we are the ones who are to obey. Okay? This is unmistakable in the teaching of Jesus. How about in John 13, 13 through 17? He says, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. You understand? Remember this? This, this thing I was telling you, Jesus is Lord whether you recognize it or not. And here's what he's saying. <laughs> you call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's what I am. He's the teacher and he's the Lord. Amen? He says, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Okay? So here's Jesus, and he's giving these guys commandments. He's giving them directives. He's the Lord. He's the teacher. He's the sovereign. Right? And then he says, he gives an analogy of a master and a slave, implying that they are what? Slaves, because indeed they are what? Slaves. Slaves. So is everybody who has trusted Christ as Savior with saving faith. They have made themselves willingly, if you will, a slave of Christ. This is the terms that you agreed to in salvation when you came to Christ. (laughs) You came as a servant. Right? You came as somebody hopelessly lost in their sins and he bought you with a price. He bought you from the slavery of sin to bring you into his house and make you a slave. Are you with me? Of course, slavery to Christ is true freedom. Amen? We'll talk more about that. How about Matthew 10.24? Jesus says a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. And again, here's terms where Jesus is 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 talking about his disciples as as slaves and him as the master. Or how about in 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 21, there Paul talking about his gospel and about what true saving faith is. And there he says in verse chapter 2, verse 19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his... And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So, you know, here's Paul, and he's talking a little bit about the faith. And look at what he says here. He says that, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, what's he saying? Well, he's saying, if you want to call yourself a Christian, right, what ought you do to do? You ought to repent of sin. You ought to abstain from doing evil deeds. Amen? And, you know, he doesn't say... Let those of you who kind of think it's a good idea abstain from wickedness, right? But he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Amen? In other words, you can't be a true Christian and go on living in your sin. You can't do it. The two are mutually exclusive. Obedience is part of saving faith. Okay? 
How about James 2.14? James says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is, no. no, of course. The kind of faith that has no works doesn't save anybody. Right? Because even the demons believe and shudder. Right? What's the point? The point is the demons, they have a mental assent. They know who Jesus is. They even know he's the Lord and the Savior. Right? But they haven't done what? They haven't repented. And so, you know, this, this uh, mental assent that Jesus is Lord and God qualifies you to be a demon. Are you with me? Right? So it's not just about saying, well, I know there was a guy in history named Jesus. And I believe he was actually the Son of God and that he died on the cross to pay the sins of mankind and that he, and that he was raised again on the third day. Let me tell you, that's enough to qualify you as a demon. That's James's point. Right? James's point is, <clears throat> that's not the kind of faith that saves unless it is accompanied with obedience to the commandments of God. This is what I'm telling you. You cannot separate obedience from saving faith. Okay? And again, we're going to look at that passage in James in, in detail because... It's important that we understand that in the context of the whole Bible. But the fact of the matter is, is that the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that has obedience. Not that that obedience merits the favor of God. It simply shows the kind of faith that we have to be real. Not like the kind of faith that the demons have. Right? Because that kind of faith, verse 14, can't save a man. Are you with me? Okay. Are you with me? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So when Jesus asserts himself as Lord, okay, here's what I'm telling you. In Jesus' gospel, he's always asserting himself as Lord. He's always talking to us in these kinds of terms. You do what I say. Right? He says, look, I'm the Lord and the teacher, and I'm telling you, wash each other's feet. It's an imperative. It's a commandment, he's saying. Right? He says, love one another, right? It's a new command I give you, right? Not a suggestion, right? A commandment. And, you know, the Lord and the teachers is giving us a commandment. Well, when Jesus asserts himself as Lord, he makes it clear that those who reject his claim on them are destined to perish because of it. Okay, so here's another aspect of lordship. In Jesus' own call to lordship, he's saying, if you reject me as Lord, you are going to perish. And this is why I keep telling you, the gospel is a warning. We can't just reduce it to God loves you and has a plan for your life. Right? Well, let me tell you, God may love you and God may have a plan for your life, but let me tell you, it may not be a good one. You with me? So what should you do? Right? Repent, right? <laughs> Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, in the words of Peter. Right? And so, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, Jesus asserts himself as Lord, and when he does that, he says, those who reject his claim are going to perish. How about Matthew 7, 21? 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. You see, Jesus is is giving us an essential teaching of the gospel. He's saying, look, not everybody who calls me Lord is going to go to heaven. That's what he's saying. But only he who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? And so his point is, is that, look, you have people who, who are true believers, and you have people who are mere professors. Okay? And here the contrast in Jesus' teaching is very clear. The true believer does the will of his Father who is in heaven, and the mere professor, right? Um, the mere professor does not do the will of God. And because he does not do the will of God, Jesus says at the judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. Okay? And this is what Jesus says, just because somebody calls me Lord, doesn't mean that they, they really obey me. So now he's not just saying, acknowledge my Lordship, now he's saying, acknowledge my Lordship with deeds worthy of repentance. Understand what he's saying? He's saying, don't just tell me, I'm Lord, obey me. That's what he's saying. Okay? And furthermore, that this obedience is going to show itself to be real and true. And we're going to see this in many gospel passages. But you you see how the, the true believer does the will of my Father who is in heaven, verse 21. And verse 23, look, the mere professor... Um, you who practice lawlessness, you see that? You see the contrast? Doing the will of God or practicing lawlessness, right? And of course, practicing lawlessness, that's another way of saying sinning, right? Breaking the commandments. And remember, I want, I want to remind you of something. You remember how the, there's, two, there's two kinds of sin, right? Who can tell me what they are? Okay, there's sins of omission, and there's sins of commission. Don't forget that as we are going through these these gospel passages. Okay, so if you practice lawlessness, okay, here's what it means: it means that you omit doing what you ought to do, and you commit things you're not supposed to do. Are you with me? And on the contrary, if you are doing the will of God, okay, you are not omitting those things that you should do, right? And you are not doing those things that you should not do. Are you with me? I'll give you an example. The third commandment, right? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Okay, so you know what that means? That means you don't take the Lord's name in vain if you do the will of God. But if you practice lawlessness in that regard, what are you going to do? Well, you take the name of God in vain. So I ask you, what's coming out of your mouth? Are you with me? Because that may be the very thing that you're doing that's obvious that you practice lawlessness. 
And you're like one of those ones that says, Lord, Lord, but does not do what I say. Are you with me? Or you keep your speech holy unto God. Right? And you're like the one that does the will of God. Are you with me? This obedience is tied to this saving faith. How about Matthew 24, verses 48 through 51? This is in the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus is teaching the parable of the talents there. And he says this there. He says, But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and shall cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there, and the gnashing of teeth. Now remember my point when I started right here. It was this, that when Jesus asserts himself as Lord, he makes it clear that those who reject his claim on them are destined to perish because of it. And right here in the Olivet Discourse, he's telling everybody, look, I'm coming, I'm coming on a day when nobody knows the day or the hour, so you better be ready, right? And then he gives us two parables to teach us what being ready looks like, right? The first parable is the parable of the talents. Remember that? I gave one uh, ten, I gave another five, I gave another one, right? And and then he also gives us another parable, the parable of the ten virgins. Remember? The five wise and the five foolish. And the five wise are ready and the five foolish are, are foolish and not ready, right? And the point of Jesus' parables is, be ready, right? Well, in this parable of the talents, look at how he describes... The rejection by the evil slave who does not do his master's bidding, what his destiny becomes, right? He says, if I come and that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming, he starts eating and drinking with the drunkards, right? Jesus says that when he comes, he's going to cut that evil slave in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. You understand? Jesus, when he asserts himself as a soon-coming Lord, he says, you better be ready. Okay? Not like that evil slave who's out eating and drinking with drunkards. You with me? And so his point is, you reject my lordship, and you are going to perish. All right? Amen? You with me? Well, the gospel is a warning, is it not? And so Jesus is Lord... And in his gospel, he calls us to willing submission and obedience to his commands. The New Testament speaks of this calling in many ways in order to express the nature of a right response to him. This response is a major theme in the gospel because people's eternal destiny is at stake in it. And it shows the true nature of our faith, whether or not we have been truly called and chosen of God for salvation. Okay, so here's the point. Listen. In the gospel, we're called to willing submission to Christ's lordship and obedience. Okay? Now, I want to tell you how this lordship controversy takes shape in a conversation that you're having with somebody about the gospel. Okay? So, here's how it goes, you know. Let's just say that one day you're at the water cooler and you're talking with the person there about their sinful relationship whereby they're shacked up with some person living in immorality. And I don't know how that conversation came about, but the fact of the matter is you can see that by the deeds of their life 
They're not following Christ. They're not obedient to Christ. You've been praying for this person and trying to witness to them for years. And, you know, the conversation just comes to a head and you're able to, you know, share, look, you know, it's obvious that your life isn't right with Christ. You need to get your life right. Right? Well, so you tell them about this, you know, this thing that's really clear to you. And they turn around with things. <laughs> right? And you've engendered a bit of persecution here. Are you with me? And the conversation goes something like this. Well, I thought all I had to do was believe. Isn't that what you told me? All I have to do is believe and Christ forgives me of my sin. By the way, you know, God understands me. You ever heard that before? God, God understands me. God knows that, you know, me and God, you know, we, we kind of have this thing. <laughs> me and God are like this. God understands me. In other words, you know, God knows me, and he doesn't mind if I live in immorality with somebody. I mean, I, I, mean, I know what the Bible says and all that, but, but God understands me. He understands my unique circumstances. Okay? Now, now, not only that, let me tell you, that person may actually have been in an evangelical church where they have had that kind of a gospel taught to them in the past. Because there's such an emphasis on, you know, let me tell you, there, there's a doctrine that uh, goes around in certain circles that, that's called once saved, always saved. Okay, let me tell you about this. Okay, now I'm not talking about the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a doctrine that is termed once saved, always saved. Here's what they mean by this thing, okay? I'm going to try to uh, articulate this for you. If you were ever in an evangelical church service and you responded to an altar call and in that altar call you walked down to the front and you said the words and said the prayer to commit your life to Christ, you're saved. You're in, baby. And once that's happened, you can never lose your salvation. Okay, this is how this thing is taught. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating you can lose your salvation. I'm just saying that if that faith that you had at that time is not characterized by obedience and submission to the Lordship of Christ, it's not the kind of faith that saves and you never had a salvation to lose. Are you with me? So how will we know whether or not you're truly saved? Or more importantly, how will you know that you're truly saved. Well, if you go out and five years later you find yourself shacking up with some gal, right? Because, because, uh, you know, God understands you and he realizes that, you know, you got a few flaws in your life and, you know, it's okay with you and God because of that thing you did back there five years ago. Are you with me? You see how destructive these doctrines are? Let me tell you, that's an extremely popular doctrine and I want to tell you inside evangelical Christianity. I don't want to name the denomination that <laughs> that's their flagship doctrine because I don't want to offend people that may be of that tradition. But the fact of the matter is, is that family, that is a deceitful, wicked, evil way to characterize the gospel and it leads people astray. It leads them down the broad path to destruction. Are you with me? And so what happens when we look at this person's life and what we see is the fruit of is sin. What does that tell you about the nature of their faith? If they live in an ongoing pattern of sin, right? 
What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says immense, huge, massive volumes of things about that, which I'm going to show you today and, and next Sunday, Lord willing, okay? But the point is is that the, the fruit of our life shows us the nature of the faith that we have, if it's the kind of faith that saves or the kind of faith that doesn't save. Are you with me? Okay? And so here's a little bit more about that lordship controversy. It's important then at that point, at that conversation at the water cooler, (laughs) that we're able to articulate to that person, let me tell you, it sounds to me like you misunderstood the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't say that just because you acknowledge that Jesus is some person that lived and died in history, that you're going to be forgiven of your sins, right? But in fact, the gospel teaches that if you truly embrace Christ, you're going to have a faith that proves your repentance by your deeds. As a matter of fact, those are the very words of Acts 26.20, where Paul is telling King Agrippa what his gospel was. I preached, he said, that men should repent and prove their repentance by their deeds. You see, that was part of Paul's gospel. He said, don't, don't just confess that Jesus is Lord, Lord, and do not do what he says. Or you could even quote that scripture to him and say, how can you call Jesus Lord, but you do not do what he says? Aren't you like those very professors that he's teaching are going to perish in their sin? You with me? And you see how people can have a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's important that we're able to articulate it to them. Because that's the very thing that's got them locked in this sin, right? And there they are just justifying it day after day in their own minds. Their conscience is being pricked. They know they're doing wrong, right? But they've got this mental justification for the thing. And that's just one example of, of many that I could give you, right? But I'm telling you, this lordship controversy, it's an important thing. It's an important thing that we need to be able to express to people because of the way that the gospel has been watered down in our time in history. Are you with me? How many of you have heard expressions of this watered down gospel? Right. See, it's very prevalent. We're all aware of it, aren't we? Even holding man's view, God's view. You know, people just aren't doing their homework. Mm-hmm. Being mm-hmm. Yes. Right, everybody, you know, everybody who's in their sin, justifying their sins, got a good reason for it. They got to be able to tell themselves something, right? At least a good part of them do. I know, I know, in postmodernism, right, nobody cares anymore, you know, and and they think because they don't care, God doesn't care, right? How wrong they are, right? And uh, ignorance will not be an excuse at the judgment seat. Yes, ma'am. One reaction I've gotten a few times is something like, so you're telling me you're perfect? Yeah. Right. You're holier than me. Right. You're holier than thou, right? Mm-hmm. So I think what you said about an ongoing pattern, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, everybody sins, but then the true Christian's response to that is repentance and grief. Amen. Yeah. Not perfection. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to some verses in First John. When we talk about true believers and mere professors, I'm going to show you how the Bible teaches about this topic very clearly. And, and like Carol was saying, it's not that we don't sin, okay? Every one of us in this room that's been born again still sins every day. 
right, in thought, word, or deed, right? I mean, we commit sin all the time, right? That's the nature of our fallen self, right? However, we have the nature of God living in us, and we're convicted by that sin, right? The Holy Spirit is there to say, wait a minute, time out, bub. You can't do that. Isn't Jesus Lord, Lord, right? And so there is this great struggle within us over sin, right? And it's not the struggle to find a new way to justify our sin, right? It's a brokenness and a humility before God that weeps and mourns over our sin, right? And we cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Amen? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so, yeah, but we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, you know, what this saving faith is characterized by when we talk about the nature of faith. So, here's something I want you to kind of grasp. You know, when we say, you know, what do you need to do to be saved? Well, it's real simple, family. If you haven't heard me say it, let me just boil it down for you, okay? Repentance and faith. That's what you need to be converted. That's the human response that shows that you've been truly born again by the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Because regeneration precedes faith. Okay, faith is a gift that God gives, and when he gives it, you employ it. And that's how somebody gets saved. But the point is, is that repentance and faith is the human response that is what happens when we're converted. Okay, so let's talk a minute about conversion. What do you need to do to be saved? Well, you need to repent of your sins and have faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And, and so uh, in Acts 20, that's, what, that's exactly how Paul characterizes his gospel. But the point is, is that it's real simple, okay? It's not, it's not real complex. Your response to the gospel is real simple. Repentance and faith, okay? So just for a minute, let's talk about faith. Just briefly, we'll talk more about it. But faith is simply three things, okay? Biblical saving faith is three things. It's knowledge, agreement, and trust. Okay? Now you can, you, there's a lot of different ways to describe those three elements. But here's, here's, here's how it goes. Okay? Knowledge. Jesus died for sins. Jesus lived for righteousness. And, um, and then, and so you know those facts about Jesus. Then you agree, okay, with those gospel facts. I'm a sinner. Jesus is the provision that God provided to save me, right? And so I agree with those things wholeheartedly. But that only qualifies you to be a demon. Okay? Because it's missing this third element. This third element, I think it's in the Latin, is fiducia. It means trust. It means there's a commitment. Okay? And, and you may have a knowledge of Christ, and you may agree that that knowledge is true, but until you come to the place where you embrace it with your heart, and you embrace it with a commitment, okay, you don't have the kind of faith that saves. And so that, that faith needs that third element of trust, okay? And so, if you will, when we say repentance and faith, that's the kind of faith we're talking about. We're talking about a faith that goes all the way to committing itself to obedience to Christ. Are you with me? 
But the way that that obedience, I mean, you could, you could just say that faith is enough. Because faith is enough. Because true saving faith is characterized by repentance. Are you with me? So, I mean, we could boil it down that, that short. But it's better to do it in a biblical way. In the Bible, when they're preaching the gospel, they're always telling us to repent. Because God wants to make it real clear. Okay? Faith isn't just being calling him Lord, Lord, and do not doing what he says. He wants to make it real clear. We need to repent. You know what that means? Stop sinning. That's what it means. Stop sinning and do what's right. Okay? It's not just feeling sorry for your sins. That's not repentance. Okay? That's feeling sorry for your sins. Okay? Repentance is stopping sinning and doing what is right. Are you with me? So, when we boil this thing down and we say, what do I need to do to be converted? Well, uh, you, you have faith and repentance, or repentance and faith. Okay? And one goes with the other. Okay, but the, 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 the point here is that this faith has a, a commitment of trust in Christ. Okay, now that is witnessed in our life or born evidence of by repentance. Because if you've come all the way to the place where you're trusting Christ for your salvation with all of the agreement of the fact that you're a sinner, right? And you need a Savior. And so God has provided Christ. If you truly believe that with a trustful commitment, what's going to be a response in your life? Well, if Christ saved me from my sins, how can I go on sinning? Right? Which is the topic of Romans chapter 6, right? If, if, if Jesus is the Lord and he's telling me to stop sinning, what must I do? Stop sinning, right? Okay, so think about this then. When we talk about repentance... That biblical repentance is a summons to obedience. Okay? And here's, here's what it doesn't just mean. Well, let's not reduce, let's not reduce repentance to that thing I did back there in the chapel 12 years ago. Okay? <laughs> Cause repentance is not that thing you did back there in the chapel 12 years ago. Now you might have repented there, right? But then you had to go home and go to bed. Wake up the next day and do what? Repent. Right? And here I am 12 years later, and I'm going to wake up today and I got to do what? Repent. Right? And that ongoing pattern of repentance and faith shows my faith to be genuine. Are you with me? Okay, so then, the summons to repentance is a call to obedience. Jesus is often heard calling people to repentance from sin and warning them of the consequences of sin. At the same time, his message called people to believe or trust in and rely upon him in order to be right with God. And so Jesus' words um, uh, in Mark chapter 1, after, And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay? So you can see how conversion in the words of Jesus is boiled down to these two simple things. Repent and believe. Right? Repentance and faith. Or in Luke 13, Jesus is commenting on the Tower of Siloam that fell and they're, they're asking him about it. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Or do you suppose that those whom the eighteen on the Tower of Shalom fell and killed them were worse culprits than all men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And here Jesus is telling these people very clearly, you need to stop sinning. Okay, this is the gospel that he was preaching. You know, when you hear a gospel preacher, he ought to be up in that pulpit, and here's what he ought to be saying. Stop sinning! Which implies he's got to use the S word. (laughs) Are you with me? He's got to use the R word. Because that's what stop sinning is. Repentance. Right? That's the kind of thing. Here's Jesus, the gospel preacher, and what's he saying? Repent and believe the gospel. So when you hear a gospel preacher, what ought you to hear him saying? Repent and believe. Right? And of course that's accompanied with the lifting up of Christ as the only way to be saved. Right? Okay. In this repentance, he was calling people to turn away from sin and to obedience to God's commandments. This is what repentance is. It is to stop sinning and start doing what is right. Repentance is not only feeling sorry for sin, but doing what is right from the heart with positive and active steps, as Paul taught us, to perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Repentance is proven real when the deeds show it to be real. And this is what Paul said, Acts 26.20. He says, I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and those at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now there Paul tells us what his message was through the whole region. You see that? When he's defining what he was preaching, here's what he's saying. I was preaching that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. You see, obedience characterized Paul's preaching of the gospel. He was calling people to be obedient to Christ. Okay? Repentance is not a one-time act, but lifelong obedience. The New Testament explains this nature of repentance over and over again. How about John the Baptist? Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. You see what he's saying? Here's what John's saying. Here, let's bear some fruit in the kingdom. How? In keeping with repentance. Ongoing repentance from sin. Right? And so that they're not confused by what he's saying. And the multitudes were questioning him. Then what shall we do? John? And he would answer them. Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. And let him who has food do likewise. And some tax gatherers came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. You know, what was his gospel? His gospel was, Stop sinning and do what's right. Are you with me? Let me tell you, that will engender some persecution. And the world is going to hate you when you preach that message. And they're going to call you holier than thou. 
right? And they're going to characterize you as a self-righteous bigot, just like they did Jesus. So much so that there's the Son of God hanging on the cross and they're mocking and shaking their heads at Him and saying, if you're who you say you are, come down off of that cross. Right? And here He is paying the price for their very sins, for their very scoffing. Amen? And so, here's this gospel, family. The gospel is accompanied with obedience to the commandments of God. How about Ephesians 4? Paul is talking to the Christians. He says, he's talking about the Gentile way of life and the futility of their thinking, their ongoing lust for sin. And, and he says, but you did not learn Christ this way, chapter 4, verse 20. If indeed you have heard of him and been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see, when Paul explains the gospel, he says, you put off that old way of life. You put off the futility of the flesh. You put off all that lust of deceit and, 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 and lust for all kinds of debauchery and things that he describes there in Ephesians 4. He says, you didn't learn Christ like that. He says, the way you learned Christ was to put all of that off and put on the new self and begin to act like Christ in true righteousness and holiness. Amen? You see, that's the gospel we preach. We're calling people to obedience. Amen? We're calling people to a holy life. You know what that means? A life without sin. Right? When we come to Christ and we become a Christian, listen, we need to develop a hatred for sin. Sin is the enemy. (laughs) Right? Sin is the thing that offended God. Sin is the thing that plunged the creation into death and bondage. Amen? And that's the thing we are to put off. In Titus 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You see how Paul describes his gospel? It's repentance from sin. It's obedience to God. This lifelong obedience or perseverance is spoken of by Jesus and the apostles as a mark of those who will be saved. Perseverance cannot be separated from true repentance because it proves repentance to be real. You understand what I'm saying? Perseverance in the faith cannot be separated from repentance. Okay, so what what, what we're going to persevere in is not only faith, right, but in repentance. We're going to persevere in repentance. And so here's what Jesus says, Matthew 24, 12. He says, And because lawlessness increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Right? And, you know, I think we may have a tendency when we believe the doctrine of perseverance to think, well, I can never lose my salvation. Right, And we may have a tendency to lean on the side of God's sovereignty and maybe we're not so zealous to reform our deeds. But let me tell you, the gospel is filled with warnings that our deeds prove our repentance to be real. 
And if you're looking at your life and you see an ongoing pattern of sin, you better repent. You better go get in your prayer closet and you better cry out to God and mortify that flesh. Are you with me? Okay, because that's a sign you got problems going on. Are you with me? <laughs> and I, I will talk to you more about this when we, when we get to 1 John. You know, And I think it should be clear to all of us Christians how the Bible characterizes a true believer and how the Bible characterizes a mere professor. And we need to make sure we're not the mere professor, but the true believer. Amen? And, and what's going to be a defining thing for us is perseverance to the end in faith and in repentance. Okay? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your glorious gospel. I pray that we understand it a little better today, Lord, just another piece that that helps us understand the gospel in all its fullness. I pray that our hearts are convicted, and not only that, Lord, but encouraged by the things that we have heard. Help us to see these things clearly as we read through the scripture. And Father, help us to be those who are willing to Tell people how to be saved and to explain to them the nature of true faith. God, give us words to speak that people might be saved. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.